Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Laddick with Laddick, Honor Auto, and Fetterman based in Pennsylvania. And we have offices in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Arizona, and Michigan. And we welcome you to today's podcast. And I'm Kent McPhail with Kent McPhail and Associates. Uh, we do work in Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee and have offices in those three states as well. Um, I want to introduce our guest today. Our guest has a BA in economics from New Mexico State. He attended the University of Arizona, where he obtained an MBA, and he is currently president of Capital Markets and Lending at BSI Financial Services. Welcome to the show, Larry Goldstone. Uh, thanks, Kent. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Thank you for being our guest today. Welcome. And let's just jump right in with that opening and that background that you have in mortgage finance. Let's talk a little bit about economics and where we are today. Uh, we saw last Friday news about core inflation and how it remains at a 40-year high. What are your thoughts on the economics of mortgage origination right now? And what are the prospects of how inflation is going to impact that and future defaults? So, um, obviously, uh, inflation, core inflation, has become a real serious problem. Interestingly enough, uh, inflation has been something that the Federal Reserve has been trying trying to stimulate for the better part of the last 10 to 12 years uh, and all unsuccessfully being able to do so. But they basically drove interest rates to zero, uh, at least short-term interest rates to zero after the uh, Great Recession of the late 2000s uh, and early 2010s. Um, uh, but they were unable to get inflation to come up to the 2% target that they have as a long-term goal for inflation. Uh, it took the confluence of a couple of events, um, uh, mostly driven around the pandemic, uh, to actually be able to drive inflation uh, well above uh, the Fed's long-term target. Um, in that scenario, we saw a confluence of three events. One was very easy monetary policy and even some uh, unique approaches to monetary policy called quantitative easing, which was designed to drive long-term interest rates lower instead of just the Fed influencing short-term interest rates. And then you layer on that a pandemic and the economic fallout that that had, which led to some very massive fiscal stimulus, and then uh, an economy that seemed to recover very quickly after the pandemic, and uh, a lot of supply chain disruption as well. And all of that has led to a very dramatic rise in short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates as long-term interest rate investors and uh, individuals or folks who are dependent on uh, credit for their um, prospects have been trying to catch up to the rate of inflation. So uh, today we see 7% plus mortgage rates, and that is all uh, part and parcel of a very aggressive Fed tightening. And we think it's going to continue uh, because the Fed doesn't really have a hand on inflation just yet. Yeah, Larry, that was going to be my question. So um, as we all know, the Fed has been very aggressive uh, in their their rate increases over the last several months in an effort to try to to curb the inflation. Um, what do you think the, the prospects are or expectations for the Fed's involvement and intervention in the industry over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, I think the Fed has made it pretty clear that they're going to continue to raise interest rates aggressively. Um, my sense, based upon sort of what they call the Fed dot plot, is that the Fed is probably going to take a pause towards the end of this year. Once they have the federal funds rate so in the four and a quarter to four and a half percent 
uh, interest rate range. That seems to be the target they're shooting for right now. One thing that I think people have to keep in mind is Fed policy takes a relatively long period of time to take effect. It's typically an 18 to 24 month lag behind when the Fed starts a tightening policy and when we actually begin to see real results. And so we're probably three months into this tightening policy, maybe a little bit more, but there's a lot of time left to go before we see the full impact of the actions that they've taken so far. Interesting. That's a a really good point. That's what I was going to ask you about a little bit on the secondary market. What are the impacts on secondary market for loans with the increase in rates and certain adjustable rate loans out there? Do you see more loans coming to sale in the secondary market? And and how are the prices of those loans? Well, uh, first of all, I don't see a lot of loans coming to market. We've already seen origination volumes reduced by something in the neighborhood of 50% uh, from where they were a year ago. Uh, Lenders are truly struggling. This is a very challenging time for originators because it's always easier to ramp up your origination production than it is to ramp down. And so we've seen some pretty substantial losses uh, as a result of loans being unhedged. We've seen layoffs, and I suspect that is going to continue for uh, an additional period of time, probably into the first quarter of next year. So loan origination volumes are down. Loan sale volumes are going to be down as well. Uh, Prices are down substantially. Uh, Bonds are down 15 points. 15 points um, uh, as we sit here today. Uh, so that has been a dramatic decline in uh, in bond prices and therefore the prices at which you can sell mortgages. So there's a lot of underwater mortgage paper out there today. How do you, how do you feel that's going to affect the foreclosure, the percentage of foreclosures moving forward? I mean, I know federal government has done a lot of things in terms of loss mitigation packages to try to assist borrowers um, do you think that's going to persist as well? And what sort of effect do you think that's going to have? Well, I think, first of all, um, we've had a very, very strong housing market. Um, home prices have been uh, increasing at historically very high rates. Uh, and that appears to have peaked. And it appears as if home prices are beginning to come down a little bit. Uh, everybody always sort of thought that there wasn't going to be uh, any supply available and that demand would continue to be very strong. But we're already beginning to see home prices come down. Uh, home sales are coming down. The demand for housing is coming down because far fewer people can qualify for a mortgage today than they could uh, a year ago. And so the dynamics are in place for home prices to decline pretty significantly. What that means for loss mitigation is the easy strategy of defaulting on your mortgage or being behind on your mortgage and selling your home for a profit or selling to get out of your, to resolve your debt is likely not going to continue for very much longer. Uh, We're already seeing increases, I'm sorry, decreases, for example, in third-party sales uh, at foreclosure auctions. Um, Used to be probably just three or four months ago, virtually any home that was put on, put on the market at a foreclosure sale was going third-party sale. Now we're seeing that number, that participation by third-party buyers uh, declining pretty significantly. And that just indicates something about where home prices are going relative to total debt owed by mortgage borrowers who are in default. The other thing to note here is the fact that the government has been very generous with their loss mitigation packages. Those packages were all geared towards folks who were affected by COVID and by the pandemic. And so consequently, what's happening today are borrowers are being to, to default because they might be losing their job. 
because their income has been reduced in some way, shape, or form. Inflation is rising. They can't afford to pink their home payments anymore or their mortgage payments anymore. And those forbearance or COVID-related loss mitigation strategies, I guess they were the CARES Act uh, options, are not available today. So if third-party sales are going away and home prices are coming down and you can't sell your own home to resolve your debt and there's no real uh, aggressive loss mitigation strategy under the CARES Act, uh, unfortunately, I think that's going to not bode very well for borrowers who need to resolve debt down the road. So um, in your time at BSI, it, it looks as though you guys have gone through significant growth and the numbers of loans that you're servicing. In your position there, how have you brought that about and how have you guys managed that growth? So I came to BSI initially as a consultant. Historically, BSI was a special servicer of defaulted and delinquent mortgages uh, that were being sold out of bank and agency portfolios after the Great Recession and the financial crisis in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 29, 2010 timeframe. But that was a business strategy that worked very well, but it was not a long-term business strategy as the economy recovered, home prices recovered, defaults cleared, and uh, life got back to pretty much normal in the housing uh, and mortgage sector. So BSI pivoted, and I was helpful in trying to help them strategically move in a direction of being more of a performing loan servicer as opposed to focused primarily on default servicing. Uh, And in order to accomplish that, we established some capital markets-based strategies that allow us to be a purchaser of mortgage servicing rights with uh, institutional investors as partners, as opposed to trying to go out and just subservice mortgage loans. And then the pandemic was sort of a sea change event with regard to our ability to be able to grow the company very dramatically. Probably three or four years ago, we had about 50,000 loans that we were servicing. Today, we're north of 200,000 loans. So we've grown 4X in the last couple of years. Um, and it's impressive. No doubt. Yeah. Um, it's been really good. The pandemic was probably the biggest reason. Pandemic created a lot of liquidity issues. It caused a lot of people to have to go out, disappear from the market. And BSI happened to be sort of in the right place at the right time with the right structure and the right strategy. And available capital to deploy. And we were able to step into the market and take advantage of sort of a whole confluence of events out there. That is fantastic. Um, but, and that is fantastic growth. I mean, what do you see as the future growth uh, trajectory for BSI? And I'll ask you a bit cool. of a compound question along with that growth uh, trajectory. Uh, what do you see as the forecast for foreclosures over the next 12 months with those economic factors that we were talking right. about? Uh, so let's try to take them in order. Um, you know, we we uh, at BSI do have some substantial growth um, aspirations. Um, my experience suggests to me that growth sometimes comes in fits and starts. This happens to be an environment where growing our MSR acquisitions is a little bit challenging. Um, we have a relatively high interest rate environment based upon where we've been over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. And um you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace today. And so applying capital to buy MSR is a little bit more difficult today based on the volatility in the market, uncertainty about where interest rates are going, and, you know, factors like that. But my sense is that, you know, the Fed is going to accomplish their goals here. We are going to see a relatively material slowing in economic activity. And at some point here, we're going to see the Fed go in the other direction and rates are going to start falling again as they recorrect and try to undo the slowing that they're going to precipitate here, and that's going to become yet another opportunity uh, for substantial growth for BSI. So we'll probably be on a modest growth path for the next six months to nine months, and then we'll um, we'll grow pretty exponentially after that. 
As far as the foreclosure and default side of the equation, that's not such a rosy picture from the standpoint of mortgages, mortgage finance, home ownership, et cetera. Uh, we definitely think that this economic and interest rate cycle is going to lead to increases in unemployment. I've already mentioned that we think that home prices are going to come down. We've already seen dramatic increases in interest rates, which means far fewer people are going to be able to qualify for a mortgage. None of that bodes particularly well for home ownership, particularly for those in a distressed or sort of higher higher credit risk segments of the mortgage space. I'm particularly concerned about the Ginnie Mae sector of the space, the government lending sector of the space. I think Fannie and Freddie have done a very good job of controlling credit and managing credit risk uh, over the last 10 years or so. But I think FHA, VA, and USDA basically stepped in after the financial crisis and became the, the next subprime lender. And loans that you see that FHA and VA are insuring are typically lower credit score borrowers, typically very high loan to values. Borrowers don't have a lot of skin in the game. And when equity in those properties goes to zero or goes negative, have the potential to see a lot of borrower default. Borrowers just sending in the keys, throwing in the towel and let the servicers and the lenders deal with the uh, the real estate. So I think we're in for a rough ride on the foreclosure side. Um, maybe good for foreclosure attorneys, but for homeowners, it's going to be a challenge. So let's kind of go a different direction. So when you're not uh, utilizing your extensive skills relating to the mortgage industry, what do you do for fun in your spare time? I mean, uh, rumor has it from my co-host that you are quite the chef and, and know a little bit about wine. So what, what do you do when you're out having fun? What what makes you happy? Well, I, I, I definitely am a foodie. And I definitely am a guy that likes fine wine. You know, I, I've been very blessed in periods of my career. I've been able to afford to buy some pretty nice wines and sellers some pretty nice wines and learn to drink uh, a variety of wines. I'm really an old world wine guy. French wines being my favorite, Italian wines being my second favorite. And no good bottle of wine is ever quite as good unless it's accompanied by some really good food. So um I enjoy nice restaurants and I do enjoy cooking at home. I do that as well. So those are the things I do for fun. But, you know, you got to work out all, work off all those calories. So, um, you know, I'm a runner. I'm a little bit of a fitness nut and uh, I'm a golfer. I love to get out and play 18 holes of golf. And I'm not a guy that rides a golf cart. I'm a guy that walks and carries his bag and gets out there and plays 18 holes that way. So that's how I uh, stay in shape. That's great. Kent and I played 18 holes last week and I got my money's worth. I had more swings than you can imagine for the money. <laughs> That's the way to get your money's worth, Steve. No doubt about it. We were we were at a charity event, uh Carrington charity event out at Pelican Hill and Bless the two guys that got saddled with uh, Stephen and I on their team because they literally had to carry us the entire day. But uh, we had fun. <laughs> Well, as long as you had fun, that is a beautiful golf course, by the way. I've played it a couple times before. That's an amazing place. I love it right there along the coast. Uh, could not could not beat the view. Absolutely. So I, I'm pretending like I asked this question from our listeners, but I really am asking it for me, which is what's the best piece of advice that a mentor gave you that you feel like was uh, substantial in your life and helping you achieve your goals that you would want to pass on? So, yeah, this is a tough question. I've even had a chance to think about this for a day or so and still had a hard time coming up with it. But I'll, I'll say this. I have had the pleasure of working with some very, very smart, very brilliant uh, individuals, uh, folks who mentored me along as I went through my 40s and 50s. And um, I would say uh, the best advice that I can ever remember having gotten is to remain humble. Uh, be thankful for what you have. Uh, remain humble. Don't get... Uh, 
don't get too carried away and too excited about your own success. Uh, success is a very fleeting thing. I think um, life is best when uh, when you rely on people around you. You have good friends, uh, and you stay uh, you stay humble uh, about what you've accomplished. And that way, you never get too cocky, and you never get too far out over your skis. So that's the advice I've gotten, and that's what I'd pass along to others. Humility. Excellent. I want to let you know it's been a, a pleasure meeting you and getting to uh, hear you speak on these topics. And uh, we really do appreciate you being a guest on the show. And Stephen? Same. Thank you very much, Larry. Truly appreciate you being a guest and truly appreciate the insights that you bring and uh, what you do for our industry on a daily basis. So thank you. Well, you're both very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Enjoyed it. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.